Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to the award-winning Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. We are bringing old-school basketball to a new-school audience. And today, we bring you a story that goes beyond the basketball court. It is a story of how a basketball team united a nation. I love basketball, and you love basketball. I love watching the game in all of its forms. I'll watch professional, college, even high school basketball. I used to coach all three of my kids in youth basketball. When I was a teenager, I used to walk over to the local park just to watch the guys play pickup basketball. I was not always there to play. Sometimes I was there just to watch playground basketball. That is how much I love it. But sometimes the game serves a larger purpose than just a simple contest between two teams. Sometimes, the game can impact a community, or a state, or even an entire nation. That is what today's story is all about. I have done a few stories like this, where the impact was much larger than the game. There was episode 68, where I shared the story of an all-black team and an all-white team playing each other illegally in the segregated American South back in the 1940s. Or episode 50, about Maurice Stokes and his friendship with Jack Twyman in the 1960s, and the money they raised to help pay for medical bills for basketball players, because back then, the NBA did not have health insurance. Or episode 47 about the first Olympics that featured basketball as a medal sport. Those were the 1936 Nazi Olympics and many Jewish American athletes had to think twice before heading over to Berlin to compete. In all three of those stories, the story took us beyond just the game itself. There was a larger social or political impact. And this is one of those stories. This story is about the Lithuanian basketball team that competed at the 1992 Olympic Games in Barcelona and what they meant to the Lithuanian people. But to understand what the 1992 team meant to Lithuania, we have to understand the history of Lithuania and the pent-up emotion that went into the Olympic competition that year. As I mentioned in previous episodes, the game of basketball spread throughout the world extremely quickly. Just something about it seemed to capture people's attention. Maybe because the game is so easy to understand. I mean, if you take someone who has never heard of the game before and then you show them a game, it would only take about five minutes for them to understand how it works. That simplicity is part of the beauty of the game. Now, I'm not trying to insult American football when I say this because I love American football. I played American football for years as a teenager. But you can take someone who has never seen the game before and show them 10 full games of American football and they still would have trouble explaining what they are seeing. It is a very complicated game. Basketball, on the other hand, is simple to understand. Now that does not mean it is simple to play. Sometimes the strategies can become quite complicated, but I am talking just about understanding how the game is played. Put the ball in the basket, and if you can do that more than the other team, you will win. 
Now, as the game was spreading throughout Europe in the 1930s, most countries started to put together a version of a national team in order to enter continental competitions. The Lithuanian team was just plain awful. They were losing games by 60 and 70 points to other tiny European countries. Even today, the country of Lithuania is less than 3 million people. That is about the size of the state of Kansas or Mississippi in the United States. So right after the 1936 Olympics, one of the American players was invited to come to Lithuania to help coach the national team and show them the American way of training and playing. After all, the American team had just won the Olympics, and that player was Frank Lubin, whose family emigrated from Lithuania to the United States, so it made sense to invite him. Even today, Frank Lubin is considered the father of Lithuanian basketball. But they did not want him to just coach. He was still in great shape. He had just won the gold medal. So they gave him dual citizenship and asked him to also play for the team. In order to play, he changed his name to sound more Lithuanian. Essentially, he was going undercover. Frank was obviously an American name, so he went from Frank Lubin to Pranas Lubinas. Whatever you have to do, right? So in 1937, the European Championship took place. Lubin was very effective in coaching the team and improving their skills. I mean, he really did a great job of giving the team proper coaching and taught them how to play the game at a high level. But for the Eurobasket tournament, he recruited two other Americans of Lithuanian descent. Both were from Chicago, Pranas Talzunas and Felixus Kryasunas. Lo and behold, they won the tournament and were the European champions. It was an incredible turnaround. Overnight, the game of basketball became Lithuania's national pastime. Teams were forming all over the country at every age level. Courts and gyms were being built all across the country. In fact, just two years later in 1939, Lithuania built the very first basketball-specific arena in all of Europe. It was called the Kaunas Sports Hall. 1939 was also the year that the next Eurobasket tournament was being held and Lithuania won it again. This time, Frank Lubin brought in five Americans of Lithuanian descent. Now let's just call it what it was. Lithuania was stacking their team with American talent and they did not care what anyone thought about it. The other countries protested because the Lithuanians were using basically an all-American starting lineup. But the protests fell on deaf ears. After all, the American players all had dual citizenship. Therefore, they were proper Lithuanian citizens. Lithuania was now the two-time defending champions of Europe. More and more kids began to take up the sport. But then World War II happened. And that changed everything for nearly every country in Europe. Basketball was put on the back burner while everybody was fighting for survival. After the war ended, there were four countries that began dividing up Europe. On one side, there was the United States, the British Empire, and France. On the other side was Russia. Europe was virtually divided in half, with the Western countries becoming allies with the British and the Americans. The Eastern countries ended up in an alliance with Russia, which would soon become the Soviet Union. Lithuania was in the eastern part of Europe, and found itself taken over by the Soviets. Lithuanians were now part of the Soviet Union, not by choice, but by force. All of the Lithuanian flags were taken down from all of their buildings, and the Soviet flag took its place. They now had to live by Moscow's rules. That's how things went for most of the next 45 years. The athletes of Lithuania had to play for the Soviet Union, wearing the Soviet uniform under the Soviet flag. It was not a choice. I mean, technically it was a choice, but the choice was to play or go to prison, or worse.
So let me fast forward a little bit to the 1988 Olympic Games in Seoul, South Korea. This was going to be the first Olympics in 12 years where the United States and the Soviet Union would both participate in. They had taken turns boycotting the previous two Olympics. What nobody knew at the time was that this would be the last Olympics where NBA players were not allowed to play. So the United States sent a team of their best college players, which included players like David Robinson, Mitch Richmond, Dan Marley, Hersey Hawkins, Stacey Ogman, and Danny Manning. The Soviet Union featured a very strong team with four Lithuanian players. Vaidemaris Chromisius, Rinas Kurtnaitis, Sorunas Marshalonis, and the best of them all, Arvidas Sabonis. The Soviet team was able to defeat the United States in the semifinals and bring home the gold medal for the second time in Soviet history. By the way, if you want to know more about Arvidas Sabonis, go back and check out episode 72 where we profile his career. Anyway, back to the story. A year after those Olympics in 1989, the Berlin Wall fell signifying the end of European communism. It meant the end of the Soviet Union as we knew it. These various Soviet republics began to declare independence from the Soviet Union. Lithuania was one of those countries. They declared independence so that they could be in charge of their own destiny. All of the Soviet flags from around the republic came down and the Lithuanian flag was once again raised everywhere. It was an absolutely incredible time for the people of Lithuania. It meant freedom. But as the 1992 Olympics approached, questions began to be asked as to whether or not these former Soviet republics would attempt to send athletes to the Olympics. Most of these former Soviet republics were struggling just to get a stable government in place. Organizing their national sports teams was not exactly high on their priority list. Well, this is a good place to take a quick break, and I'll be right back with how they made it to the Barcelona Games. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. We here at the Sports History Network proudly partner with 26 podcasts, all revolving around the history of sports. But did you know that many of our hosts were sports history authors way before they started their shows? It's true. We've got Joe Ziemba, host of When Football Was Football, Joe Zagurski, host of Pro Football in the 1970s. Mark Morthier, host of Yesterday Sports. Tommy Phillips, host of Lombardi Memories. And Scott Adamson, co-host of From the 55-Yard Line. All these authors have many books for you to choose from. To check them out, go to our website at sportshistorynetwork.com slash sportshistorybooks. Pick up your copy today! Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of FilmMusic.io. Welcome back to the show, and let us continue with the story of the 1992 Lithuanian basketball team. As I mentioned, the 1992 Olympics were coming, and they had to figure out how to get there. You cannot just send athletes to the Olympics. There are a few hoops to jump through. Every sport has its own version of how you get athletes to the Olympics, but this is how it works for basketball. First, a country has to set up a basketball federation that will organize and oversee the national team for that country. The federation for the United States is called Team USA Basketball. Second, that federation has to be accepted as a member in good standing by FIBA, the International Federation of Basketball. Once a country is a member of FIBA, they then become eligible to compete in the qualifying tournaments to earn a spot at the Olympics. For basketball, the Olympics only allow 12 nations to participate. 
any more than that, and they would not be able to complete the tournament within the 16 days of the competition. So being able to secure a spot at the Olympics is a significant accomplishment in itself. Lithuania was not the only country that had to figure out what to do. If they were going to compete at the 1992 Olympics, they were going to need to move quickly in setting up a national federation for basketball and then applying to FIBA in time to still compete in a qualifying tournament. But they were not the only country in this predicament. Former Soviet republics like Ukraine, Armenia, and Latvia were in the same boat. These countries were all so new that creating and funding sports federations was a very tall order. These brand new nations had to focus on setting up governments. They had to write constitutions, elect leaders, create a national bank to issue currency, begin to collect taxes, create a military, and law enforcement. This was not an easy thing to do, and trying to add sports to that was just too much. So the Olympics created a special exception in 1992. These former Soviet republics could still compete together under a single flag for just the single 1992 Olympics as the unified team. Most of these nations decided to do that because it was quicker and easier than doing all of the federation stuff that I just mentioned. But not Lithuania. They realized that the top four scorers from the Soviet team that won gold in 1988 were all Lithuanian. In other words, most of the basketball talent that the Soviets relied on was from their own country. So why have these guys playing for the unified team when they could play under the Lithuanian flag? So the country decided to quickly form a federation and apply to FIBA to be admitted as a basketball playing nation. To their credit, FIBA approved the application quickly. Lithuania can now compete in the qualifying events to get into the Olympics as a free Lithuania. This was a blow to the unified team since they just lost four of their best players. Now it made sense because Lithuania had the players, they had a coach, they just needed funding. Like most of these brand new independent nations, they had no economy. They were starting from scratch. Lithuanian team would have to figure out how to fund themselves and get to Barcelona. And funding a basketball team is more than just buying some uniforms. That was probably the easiest part. They had to hire a staff like trainers, team secretary, arrange for flights, hotels, meals, etc. Now this is where luck played a role. One of the players on Lithuania was Sarunas Marshallonis, who was already playing in the NBA for the Golden State Warriors. That was the connection between the Lithuanian team and the San Francisco Bay Area. The Warriors beat writer wrote a column in the San Francisco Chronicle about how the Lithuanian team needed funding desperately in order to make it to Barcelona. The members of the band The Grateful Dead were also from San Francisco and they got a hold of this column and they decided that they wanted to help. The band immediately donated $5,000 to the effort. They also hired an artist to create merchandise like tie-dye t-shirts in Lithuanian colors, tie-dye being a staple of Grateful Dead merchandise. They also needed a logo, which turned out to be a skeleton dunking a flaming basketball through a hoop. The name Lithuania was spelled out using the same font that The Grateful Dead used for their own logos. It was a total marriage between the Grateful Dead and basketball. All proceeds from the merchandise sales went directly to funding the team. And the team was asked to wear the merchandise every chance they got to help promote it. Sabonis took one look at the t-shirt and said, quote, Wow, this really is a free Lithuania, unquote. The Soviets always wore a simple solid color, usually red and with simple lettering. The team succeeded in the qualifying tournament. After all, they did have a lot of talent. They secured a spot at the 1992 Olympics. Coincidentally, Croatia was in a similar situation. They had declared independence from Yugoslavia and were attempting to compete at the Olympics as a brand new independent nation. And they also made it to the Olympics. 
Now it was time to head over to Barcelona. Lithuania opened up pool play with a game against China that they handled pretty easily with a 112-75 win. Next, they played Venezuela and defeated them 87-79. The third game was against Puerto Rico, and they won again 104-91. Going 3-0 is a great way to start the Olympic tournament. They put themselves in a great position to advance to the elimination round with two more pool games to go. Their fourth game was against the Unified team. They had to play against many of their former Soviet teammates, guys that they played with for years, guys that they grew up with and played with since they were kids on the Soviet Junior National Team. These were their former brothers in basketball, but the Unified team also represented 45 years of occupation of their homeland. If there was one team that they had to beat for national pride, it was the Unified team, and they lost, 92 to 80. It was a bitter pill to swallow, but they were still alive in the tournament. Their final pool game was against Australia, whom they beat 98 to 87. They finished second in their pool and easily qualified for the elimination route. In the quarterfinals, they defeated Brazil 114 to 96. It was a solid victory that put them into the semifinals. Now three out of the final four teams were going to get a medal. They had to make sure that they were one of those countries. For the semifinals, they were matched up with the United States, the dream team. If they were going to win a gold medal, they had to defeat Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Patrick Ewing, Charles Barkley, and the rest of Team USA. At that point in the tournament, no team had gotten closer than 40 points of the Americans. This was going to be the upset of all upsets if Lithuania won. Well, the Americans beat them 127-76, to a 51-point loss for Lithuania. It is still today the biggest loss in Lithuanian basketball history since they declared independence from the Soviet Union. But that loss put them in the bronze medal game, where they would get a second chance at the unified team. They knew that back home, every television set and radio set would be tuned to this basketball game. This was a second chance at redemption. It was a chance to show the Russians that they could stand on their own, not just as a basketball team, but as a nation. The entire country was counting on their 12 basketball players to come through and stick it to the Russians. I do not know how else to say it. They had to somehow get revenge for 45 years of occupation. They had to get back at them for being forced to serve someone else's government. They were again an independent and free nation. This was more than just basketball. If they could beat the Russians at basketball, then it meant that they could do anything as a nation. It would give the entire country hope that they could stand on their own and chart their own course. They had to win this time. Three million Lithuanians were counting on it. Only one of these nations was walking away with that bronze medal. The other team would get nothing. The coach played Marshallonis the entire game, and he contributed 29 points. Sabonis added 27 points. They maintained a lead the entire game. It was a small lead, but still, it was a lead. They came through with a four-point victory at 82-78. to Donnie Nelson, the son of Hall of Fame coach Don Nelson, was one of the assistant coaches for Lithuania. He described the locker room as the NBA championship times five. These guys were laughing and cheering and crying. They did it. They came through and they won an Olympic medal and they sent the Russians home empty-handed. The new president of Lithuania, Vytautas Landsbergis, went into the locker room and celebrated with the players like he was one of them. They sang an impromptu version of the Lithuanian national anthem. They were like kids. It was pure joy in that locker room. Later, they had to come back out for the medal ceremony. At the top of the podium was Team USA. They were a team made up of 11 Hall of Famers and Christian Leitner. In the second spot 
were the Croatians, who were going through their own euphoria as a brand new independent nation. And in the third spot were the Lithuanians, wearing their Grateful Dead-inspired tie-dyed warm-ups. As the American National Anthem played for Team USA, all three flags were raised. On one side of the American flag was the Lithuanian flag, a nation of three million people swelled with pride. These players had become national heroes, and they gave their country hope for a positive future. If they could beat the Russians, they could do anything. The Lithuanian team won bronze again four years later in the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta, and again in the 2000 Olympics in Sydney, Australia. For three Olympics in a row, they proved that they were the third best team in the world, even with NBA players now competing. In 2003, they broke through and won gold at the Eurobasket tournament, and they were again the official best team in Europe. Since 1992, other Lithuanian players have played in the NBA. In addition to Sarunas Marcelonis and Arvidas Sabonis, you have Zadrunas Ilgauskis, Jonas Valenciunas, and Demontis Sabonis, the son of Arvidas. Lithuanian basketball still regularly puts out a very good team, but what they did back in 1992 set the stage for their success as an independent nation. Those players are all still heroes today. Arvidas Sabonis is the president of the national team, and the team is in good hands, and they will be for a long time. Well, that is our story for today. Join us next week when we share our profile on Bob Pettit. At the time that he retired, he was the all-time leading scorer in NBA history. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care and see you soon. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.